Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Tracy Koga. And thanks for downloading this podcast from iLikeYou.com. If you can, give us a follow or a subscribe. And remember that all the information about the guests in today's episode can be found at iLikeYou.com. Now, let's get started. you get to read a book that really hits home. And this one definitely was for me, The Emperor's Orphans by Sally Ito. And it is a great honor and a pleasure to actually, well, you know, I guess the better thing would be, Sally, for you to be right here in the same room. <laughs> but uh, no, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Hewitt Home. Welcome and thank you for this book. And I know that it deals with a lot of Japanese history, but really, Sally, all families are so alike and I think share the same kind of beliefs and stories, hidden stories, um, secrets. But, you know, once you truly learn more about your family, I think it really truly helps you uh, find out more about yourself. And especially if you do have family yourself, then, right, it, it makes the story complete. So let's go back. Let's talk about the Emperor's Orphans and how it all began for you because it really is quite a, a revelation, I think, in its sense, too, for you. Yeah, well, for me, I, I, I always did kind of, as a writer, wanted to write about my family and the family history. Um, but it was just, uh, it was how to do it. And, um, and I was very conscious that I thought my story wasn't really that important. I thought it was important to tell the story of my Japanese Canadian great aunt and my parents who had been through the war and through it being interned and then um, exiled to Japan. And I also wanted to talk about my mother's family who had been uh, in Japan during the war. And I didn't really think my voice was very important, but as I wrote it, um, I realized more and more that I needed to be a voice because um, I was the storyteller mm -hmm. and I needed to know, uh, I needed to be part of this narrative. So the book is set up in such a way that there are the, important storytellers, my great aunt and um, my maternal grandfather, Toshiro. And then there's me just sort of explaining who they are and how they influenced me and what they thought. <laughs> oh, um, so I wanted to ask, though, a little bit into the history because I just, again, recently found out. I mean, we knew and understood about the redress and the internment. But there was another part of that too, where the government was ready to ship Canadian, like Japanese Canadians who were born in Canada back to Japan. And, and like you say, exiled. And this was a very important part of your book. So that didn't necessarily happen in my family, but I found it interesting in how when they got to Japan, it wasn't 
they were foreigners in, in a, yes. definitely yes yeah well the interesting thing about uh, the repatriation policy as it was called was uh, that um, people were making decisions because they're, they were dispossessed of their property and they couldn't return to the West Coast. And this was a, a thing that was different between the Americans and uh, the way that Amer Japanese Americans were treated and Japanese Canadians were treated was this repatriation option. And um, it contributed to the, you know, um, to the exiling of people like my grandmother, who was Canadian by birth, and my uh, father and his brothers, uh, who were born in uh, uh, Canada, as, a, as effectively it was, it was a kind of exile. They were, they had really no say in the decision, so um, you know it was kind of that sort of situation. Yeah, and for yourself too, I guess growing up, Sally. If we talk about the way you felt and and your own family life, and you talk about assimilation and just fitting in, and um, you know wearing all the modern clothes and. And everything like that and I kind of think about too I mean we did grow up in the exact same era and you know for me um, I, w I guess I, I consider myself fortunate I didn't feel any different but it's you know it's always a different situation for for any other person too as well so for you what was it like for yourself growing up well, you know, I grew up in um, Alberta in the predominantly white suburb of Sherwood Park just outside of Edmonton. So I was quite conscious that I was really the, like, really one of the few Asian kids in my entire high school. It was a big high school. Um, there were other racial minorities there, of course. But overall, I would say that it was, it was more or less white. There were maybe a few uh, black students, a few South Asian students. Um, and there were also other um, Japanese Canadians that had come from Southern Alberta, but I felt like I was in a sea of whiteness. <laughs> and you know, it, it, you're, not, you're not really a, you're not really thinking that consciously about it. Uh, but you know, I as you get to your high school and stuff, you you do start to notice things, you know, like that. And I, also, I was going to Japanese language school, and I was aware that I was always speaking Japanese at home. Um, and so the culture was different at home than it was outside. So there was, all, you know, there was that kind of bifurcated sense of being in two worlds, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, and that's interesting, too, because you did keep up your Japanese, uh, going to Japanese school, learning about the culture, speaking it. Um, so what was it or when was it that you really wanted to learn more about yourself and that you wanted to learn more about your, your heritage? Well, I would say it was probably in high school. Um, I I really sensed by that point that I, I I needed to I needed to go to Japan. You know, like I felt like that's where everything was. That's where the the language was. That's where people that looked like me were, <laughs> and people that looked like my mom were. So I was taken to Japan uh, in high school by my father for a two week trip. And after that, I was just I was just hooked. I I couldn't wait until I could go back again and. Then I did a gap year in Japan, you know, after high school, mm -hmm. and um, that desire never stopped. Like I just, <laughs> I still, I still continue wanting to go to Japan, and um, yeah. So that never that it started in high school and just never really stopped. Yeah. And then you took your family uh, back there. 
Yes. Uh, what was that whole experience like? Because by then, I mean, the story was almost, you know, you had all your information almost and being able to share now with your, with your family. What was that like? Well, that was really interesting because, you know, I never grew up in Japan. I never experienced childhood in Japan. Um, but I really wanted my kids to have uh, an experience of that. So I took them in 2011 uh, and we went twice uh, in 2007 and 2011. And I had heard that in order for the language to sort of really be rooted in a child, you should have them immersed in the language uh, at least once or twice before the age of 12. So I really did have that in mind. And I thought I really wanted to have my children exposed to that. Uh, so they they had an experience that I've never had, which was to go to elementary school <laughs> in Japan uh, and junior high school for my son at that time. And they had a really interesting experience and they understood what it was like to be mixed race kid, a mixed race kid from Canada in Japan in a Japanese school. And I think that was a very unique experience for them. Yeah. I mean, is it, I guess it's like role reversal. Um, what, and I guess, you know, in all your times going back to Japan, did you notice a change in the people or is it always the same? Like somehow I, I've only been there once and I kind of think that it's almost like you're, you know, it's frozen in time and it's, you know, they're just the same, very stoic yes. and busy and, <laughs> and, and super clean. But um, yes. have you noticed a change though with everything that's oh. happening in the world? <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, definitely. When I was there, uh, in my gap year in high school, I would get into the train and everybody's heads were black, you know? <laughs> so I felt like I would I would describe the stream of head, the stream flowing out of the uh, subway cars and trains as being a river of black heads. And then I, really the next time I went, everybody was dyeing their hair, right? <laughs> so I mean, you had blue and blonde and pink and I think this, you know, this is, uh, this is what's so fascinating about Japanese culture too, is it's it's kind of always undergoing this change and and you kind of have to keep going there to to witness that change and um and it, you know and i think maybe for japanese canadians who have only been there like once it's kind of locked in your memory and there's this kind of sense that the traditional things are what represent japan whereas in japan it's just this kind of complex mixing and matching of things and a lot of the times traditional things are, are losing you know are losing their um they're losing their hold on, on Japanese mm -hmm. people. Um, but it, interestingly enough, the Japanese Canadians and Japanese North Americans are looking to the traditional and are, are amazingly keeping it alive um, in North America in a way that it may not be in, happening in Japan. Yeah. No, I, and I think it's uh, learning about all those stories, definitely. I maybe want to just digress from the book a little bit, Sally, and just sort of talk about the issues and the racism that yes. is very prominent right now, especially towards Asians. And it's just, you know, how do, how do you kind of um, deal with it? Um, what, are you, what are your views on it, obviously? You know, it's, if you boil it down to it's you know, people just don't understand, they don't understand, and, you know, they're allowing their own ignorance to kind of come to the surface. But, I mean, a lot of this is, is really awful. And, you know, always, it's usually pointed toward elderly, which is a really growing concern. Yeah, I was really surprised by the attacks on elderly people in, um, the, in the U.S. And I think also we're seeing a lot of it because, you know, we're all connected on social media. 
And, you know, I had an interesting sort of moment of like, I, I was watching this, but I felt, you know, people asking me, are you feeling any racism here? And I think, well, no, I, I, I don't, I'm not feeling it. I, I, I don't feel it in the same way. But then at the same time as I was thinking about this, um, I, I'm on the community council for the Landscapes of Injustice project, which is a huge project that look, is looking at the dispossession of Japanese Canadians. And they just launched their di digital archive. And um, uh, so I was able to go into my family's papers. And when I look at the letters that were exchanged between the custodian's office and my great aunt, and other people were talking about their experiences of going into the archive, you can really see the racism. You can see the bureaucratic antipathy towards Japanese Canadians. You can see how the way the custodian wrote uh, about their lands and how they devalued their lands and said that they were messy and unkempt. And that was not true at all, in fact. Um, but they, they would write it that way so that they could devalue the property and then sell it for um, a, a lot less than it was worth. And, and you know, I, I, and I just thought, wow, that's this... Of course, we come from a legacy of this, and I've just completely forgotten about that. And and um, and th then I needed to tell my kids mm -hmm. that, you know, I said like, do you know that there? This is this is what um, happened to your great aunt and your grandparents. Um, it's 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 it was there in the past, and it's and it's it's rearing its head again. So you, you know, you need to you need to be aware that you come from a legacy of that. And you might think that you're not facing any racism now, but I think you need to also know that you, you, your story has some of that in there. Yeah. And I mean, it is in our nature and culture to, you know, be very passive, stoic, you know, not say, not complain, just go with the flow. Um, yes. This is so, so Asian. <laughs> yes. And, no, and I mean, true. And, true. yeah. And so like, I guess maybe, um, words of wisdom or whatever sally because of, i mean that's your profession words and yes, words yes. can be so good and it's just like oh i wish i said that um yeah because now i mean like if we see it we have to act on it but yeah. on the other hand you know um safety is a factor right and and there's that that part of us we're just saying okay let's you know maybe stick our heads in the sand and it'll all go away yes yes yeah well you know there's it's interesting because it is. I think it is true with Japanese people generally. They they you know they have that saying: the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. And we have the saying in English: the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's it, it, and those two. And also, there's a there's a in Japanese culture there's an idea that it's better to be like a bamboo, which is to sway you know sway <laughs> with the twine, and then you won't be broken. Right? Because as a as so. And I, I, I think there's a lot to be um, uh, appreciated in that mm -hmm. um, thinking of, um, in the culture. But one thing I, I did I did realize when I was working with the Landscapes of Injustice project was that there were a number of very angry people, uh, Japanese Canadians, who wrote letters to the government and who wrote letters to the custodian who took the country to, they took the country to the Supreme Court. And I think we, as Japanese Canadians, need to say, you know, yes, we have a legacy of being angry <laughs> and standing up for ourselves. And don't think that, you know, we, we, we shouldn't act on that legacy, too. Let's not bury that. Let's, it was there. Um, and now that, you know, now that it's been uncovered, let's look to that legacy and say, this is how we can speak up again. Because actually, some of the, our Nisei elders did that. 
Yeah, no, it's so true. And you know what, I guess lastly, or as to wrap things up, for yourself, Sally, I mean, I mean to be able to write a, a family story is pretty incredible, but um, you must have changed a lot too in this whole process. Oh yeah, I did, I did a lot. And it's, and it's continuing uh, all the time. Like even having once more again, uh, access to my, um, my uh, family's archives digitally has just opened up new, um, new thoughts, new ideas. Um, I was able to share those with family members um, and I was able to share them with my children, which is a really valuable thing. And, um, and so I feel like it's, you can never be tired in a way of your family story because it's constantly evolving. And I realize now my children are mixed race and that's a whole different uh, ball game of identity that I don't, I don't know and I don't really understand. And, I, I, and that's another place I want to explore, you know, with them. Oh, because yes, they are the way of the future. And, um, and, and we do have children too that are mixed race. And yeah, I think another book on that alone would be, you know, something that I think that everybody, you know, should share and read. And although this is the Ito family history, um, it's anybody's family, I think, you know, and especially when you're going back to the motherland or anything like that. And um, to learn more about your culture, I think, will be the first steps towards anti-racism, right? Learning about other cultures and understanding. So hopefully a book like this, I think a book like this should be in schools, really. Yes, well, yeah, thank you. I, I, I yeah. hope so. I hope it gets read in schools too. There's an Italian anthropologist who said, there's no such thing as race, there's only culture. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very interesting comment. I think it's so true. And, mm -hmm. you know, we grow up with other cultures around us and we have to be mindful of that and we have to be inquisitive about that mm -hmm. and sometimes we might be blunt with our questions and kind of rude but you know we have to have a dialogue and we have to just not think of them as this that other stranger that looks different mm -hmm. or that's on the other side of the road or is in some other place but we're having an encounter with them so we need to have curiosity and engage in conversation with people like with people other than ourselves Almost oh, definitely. Well, it's pretty hard in this pandemic and isolation, yeah. but <laughs> thank goodness for Zoom. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's been so wonderful to meet you, Sally. Can't wait for the next book. And, uh, and thank you, personally. Um, it, was, it meant a lot. So The Emperor's Orphans, I would suggest getting it. It's a great little read. And uh, once again, Sally Ito, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Tracy. for listening. This has been a production of ilikeyou.com. Podcast distribution from the Sound Off Media Company. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. 
Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.